Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Mark Twain's Letters from Hawaii. All books that Uvula Audio presents are in the public domain. Volume 11. Letter 24. Kilauea, June 1866. A notable discovery. Leaving the caves and tunnels, we returned to the road and started in a general direction toward Hanau now, but were presently attracted by a number of holes in a bluff not more than three or four hundred yards from the place we had just left. We concluded to go up and examine them. Our native boatman, who had faithfully followed us thus far, and who must have been bearing the chief part of the heat and burden of the day, from the amount of perspiring he was doing, looked a little discouraged. And therefore we signified to him in an elaborate pantomime that he might as well sit down and wait till we came back. We scrambled through a tangle of weeds which concealed great beds of black and wrinkled lava and finally reached the low bluff, but the holes were just high enough to be out of reach. I bent a little below the lower one and ordered Brown to mount my shoulders and enter it. He said he could hold me easier than I could hold him, and I said he was just afraid to go into the dark of the cavern alone. He used some seditious language of small consequence and then climbed up and crawled in. I suppose the fellow felt a little nervous, for he paused up there on his hands and knees and peered into the darkness for some minutes with nothing of him visible in the face of the precipice but his broad boot soles and a portion of his person, which a casual acquaintance might not have recognized at a cursory glance. Then he and his boot soles slowly disappeared. I waited a moment in a state of lively curiosity, and then another minute with flagging curiosity as regarded the cave, but with a newborn attention to the pelting sun. Another long minute with no curiosity at all, I leaned drowsily against the wall, and about this time the investigator backed suddenly out of the hole and crushed me to the earth. We rolled down the slight declivity and brought up in a sitting posture face to face. I looked astonished, maybe, but he looked terrified. It's one of them old infernal ancient graveyards, he said. This is why the superstitious Kanaka stayed behind then? Yeah, likely. I suppose you didn't know the boneyard was there, else you'd have gone in yourself instead of me. Certainly you would have. Oh, course. Yes, you're right. But how is it in there, Brown? Compose yourself, lad. What'd you find? Oh, it's easy enough to talk, but I'm not going to prospect any more in any of those holes. Not if I know myself, I ain't. And I think I do. It ain't right anyway to be stirring up a dead man that's done his work and earned his rest. And besides, it ain't comfortable. But what did you see, Brown? What did you see? I didn't see nothing at first. I only felt. It was dark as the inside of a whale in there. Crawled about 15 feet and then fetched up against something that was wood with my nose and skinned the end of it a little. Notice where it's bloody. I felt of it with my hand and judged it to be a canoe and reached in and took out something and backed out till there was light enough, and then I found it was a withered hand of one of them rusty old kings, so I laid it down and come out again. Yes, you did come out, and you come out in something of a hurry, too. Give me a light. I climbed in and put the relic back into the canoe with its fellows, and I trust the spirit of the deceased, if it was hovering near, was satisfied with this mute apology for our unintentional sacrilege. And thus another item of patiently acquired knowledge grew shaky. 
We had learned early that the bones of great chiefs were hidden, like those of Kamehameha the Great. The information was accepted until we learned that it was etiquette to convey them to the volcano and cast them into the lakes of fire. And then that was relied on until we discovered that the legitimate receptacle for them was the holes in the precipice of Kealakakua. And now we found that the walls of the city of refuge contained orifices in which the bones of the great chiefs were deposited. And lo, here were more in this distant bluffs, and bones of great chiefs too? All bones of great chiefs? The fact is, there is a lie out there somewhere. Free and Easy Fashions of Native Women Tired and overheated, we plodded back to the ruined temple. We were blistered on face and hands, our clothes were saturated with perspiration, and we were burning with thirst. Brown ran the last hundred yards, and without waiting to take off anything but his coat and boots, jumped into the sea, bringing up in the midst of a party of native girls who were bathing. They scampered out with a modesty which was not altogether genuine, I suspect, and ran seizing their clothes as they went. He said they were very handsomely formed girls. I did not notice particularly. These creatures are bathing about half their time, I think. If a man were to see a nude woman bathing at noonday in the States, he would be apt to think she was very little better than she ought to be, and proceed to favor her with an impudent stare. But the case is somewhat different here. The thing is so common that the white residents pass carelessly by, and pay no more attention to it than if the rollicking wenches were so many cattle. Within the confines of even so populous a place as Honolulu, and in the very center of the sultry city of Lahaina, the women bathe in the brooks at all hours of the day. They are only particular about getting undressed safely, and in this science they all follow the same fashion. They stoop down, snatch the signal garment over their heads, and spring in. They will do this with great confidence within thirty steps of a man. Finical high flyers wear bathing dresses, but of course that is an affectation of modesty born of high civilization to which the natives have attained and is confined to a limited number. Many of the native women are prettily formed, but they have a noticeable peculiarity as to shape. They are almost as narrow through the hips as the men are. Exit Boomerang As we expected, there was no schooner boomerang at Kealakakua when we got back there, but the Emmeline was riding quietly at anchor in the same spot so lately occupied by our vessel, and that suited us much better. We waited until the land breeze served and then put out to sea. The land breeze begins to blow soon after the sun sets and the earth has commenced cooling. The sea breeze rushes inland in the morning as soon as the sun has begun to heat the earth again. Tranquil Scenery All day we sailed along within three to six miles of the shore. The view in that direction was very fine. We were running parallel with a long mountain that apparently had neither beginning nor end. It rose with a regular swell from the sea till this forest diminished to velvety shrubbery and were lost in the clouds. If there were any peaks, we could not see them. The white mists hung their fringed manners down and hid everything above a certain well-defined altitude. The mountainside, with its sharply marked patches of trees, the smooth green spaces and avenues between them, a little white habitation nestling here and there, a tapering church spire or two thrust upward through the dense foliage, and a bright and cheerful sunlight all over, slanted up abreast of us like a vast picture framed in between ocean and clouds. It was marked and lined and tinted like a map, 
so distinctly visible was every door and window in one of those white dwellings that it was hard to believe it was two or three miles from our ship and two or three thousand feet above the level of the sea. And yet it was, and it was several thousand feet below the top of the mountain also. Inherent Unselfishness of the Natives The night closed down, dark and stormy. The sea ran tolerably high, and the little vessel was tossed about like a cork. About nine or ten o'clock we saw a torch glimmering on the distant shore, and presently we saw another coming toward us from the same spot. Every moment or so we could see it flash from the top of a wave and then sink out of sight again. From the speed it made, I knew it must be one of those fleet native canoes. I watched it with some anxiety because I wondered what desperate extremity could drive a man out on such a night and on such a sea to play with his life, for I did not believe a canoe could live long in such rough water. I was in the forecastle, and pretty soon I began to think maybe the fellow stood some chance. Shortly, I almost believed he would make the trip, though his light was shooting up and down dangerously. In another minute, he darted across our bow, and I caught the glare from his torch in my face. I sprang aft then to get out of him his dire and dreadful news. And it was a swindle. It was one of those simple natives risking his life to bring the captain a present of a half-dozen chickens. He must have an axe to grind. I spoke of that uncharitable spirit of the civilized world which suspects all men's motives, which cannot conceive of an unselfish thought wrought into an unselfish deed by any man whatsoever, be he pagan or Christian. Not at all, said the captain. He expects nothing in return. Wouldn't take a cent if I offered it. Wouldn't thank me for it anyway. It's the same instinct that made them load Captain Cook's ships with provisions. They think it's all right. They don't want any return. They will bring us plenty of such presents before we get to cow. I saw that Kanaka was starting over the side again, and I said, Call him back and give him a drink anyhow. He's wet and dry also, maybe. Poison him with that Jamaica rum down below, said Brown. Can't be done. Five hundred dollars fine to give or sell liquor to a native, said the captain. Then the captain walked forward to give some orders, and Brown took the Kanaka downstairs and poisoned him. He was delighted with a species of rum which Brown had tried to mistake for claret during the day, and afterwards made his will under the conviction that he could not survive it. They are a strange race anyhow, these natives. They are amazingly unselfish and hospitable. To the wayfarer who visits them, they freely offer their houses, food, beds, and often their wives and daughters. If a Kanaka who has starved two days gets hold of a dollar, he will spend it on poi and then bring in his friends to help him devour it. When a Kanaka lights his pipe, he only takes one or two whiffs and then passes it around from one neighbor to another until it's exhausted. The example of white selfishness does not affect their native unselfishness any more than the example of white virtue does their native licentiousness. Both traits are born in them, are in their blood and bones, and cannot be educated out of them. In Distress By midnight, we had got to within four miles of the place we were to stop at. Cow but to reach it must weather a point which was always hard to get around on account of contrary winds. The ship was put about, and we were soon standing far out to sea. I went to bed. The vessel was pitching so fearfully an hour afterwards that it woke me up. Directly, the captain came down, looking greatly distressed, and said, Slip on your clothes quick and go up. 
and see your friend. It's been storming like everything for 15 or 20 minutes. And I thought at first he was only seasick and could not throw up, but now he appears to be out of his head. He lies on the deck and moans and says, Poetry, poetry, oh me. It's all he says. What the devil should he say that for? Hurry up. Before the speech was half over, I was plunging about the cabin with the rolling of the ship and struggling frantically to get into my clothes. But the last sentence or two banished my fears and soothed me. I understood the case. I was soon on the deck in the midst of the darkness and the whistling winds, and with assistance groped my way to the sufferer. I told him I had nothing but some verses built out of alternate lines from the burial of Sir John Moore and the destruction of Sennacherib, and I proceeded to recite them. The burial of Sir John Moore and other parties subsequently to the destruction of Sennacherib. The Syrian came down like the wolf on the fold, the turf with our bayonets turning, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and our lanterns dimly burning. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, when the clock told the hour for retiring. The lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown, though the foe were sullenly firing. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, as his course to the ramparts we hurried, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord, or the grave where our hero was buried. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast, and smoothed down his lonely pillow, and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed, and we far away on the billow. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill as we bitterly thought on the morrow, and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still, but we spoke not a word of sorrow. And there lay the steed, with his nostrils all wide, in the grave where a Briton had laid him. And the widows of Ashbur were loud on their wails, and over his cold ashes upbraid him. And there lay the rider, distorted and pale, from the field of his fame fresh and gory, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. So we left him alone in his glory. It's enough. God bless you, said Brown and then threw up everything he had eaten for three days. Cow and Waiohinu All day the next day we fought that treacherous point, always in sight of it, but never able to get around it. At night we tacked about 40 or 50 miles out, and the following day at noon we made it and came in and anchored. We went ashore in the first boat and landed in the midst of a black, rough lava solitude, and got horses and started to Waiohinu, six miles distant. The road was good and our surroundings fast improved. We were soon among green groves and flowers and occasional plains of grass. There are a dozen houses at Waiohinu and they have got sound roofs, which is well because the place is tolerably high up in the mountainside and it rains there pretty much all the time. The name means sparkling water and refers to a beautiful mountain stream there, but they ought to divide up and let it refer to the rain also. A sugar plantation has been started at Waiohinu and 150 acres planted a year ago, but the altitude ranges from 1,500 to 2,500 feet above sea level and it is thought it will take another year for the cane to mature. We had an abundance of mangoes, papayas, and bananas here, but the pride of the islands, the most delicious fruit known to men, cherry moya, were not in season. It has a soft pulp like a pawpaw and is eaten with a spoon. Papaya looks like a small squash and tastes like a pawpaw. 
In this rainy spot, trees and flowers flourish luxuriantly, and three of those trees, two mangoes and an orange, will live in my memory as the greenest, freshest, and most beautiful I've ever seen, and withal, the stateliest and most graceful. One of those mangoes stood in the middle of a large grassy yard, lord of the domain and incorruptible sentinel against the sunshine. When one passed within the compass of its broad arms and its impenetrable foliage, he was safe from the pitiless glare of the sun. The protecting shade fell everywhere like a somber darkness. In some places on the islands, where the mango refused to bear fruit, a remedy suggested by the Scientific American has been tried with success. It consists in boring a hole in the trunk of the tree, filling the same with gunpowder and plugging it up. Perhaps it might be worthwhile to try it on other fruit trees. The Cistern Tree Speaking of trees reminds me that a species of large-bodied tree grows along the road below Waiohinu, whose crotch is said to contain tanks of fresh water at all times. The natives suck it out through a hollow weed, which always grows nearby. As no other water exists in that wild neighborhood, within a space of some miles in circumference, it's considered to be a special invention of providence for the behoof of the natives. I would rather accept the story than the deduction, because the latter is so manifestly but hastily conceived and erroneous. If the happiness of the natives had been the object, the tanks would have been filled with whiskey instead. Cow Independence Judicial Sagacity the natives in the district of Cow have always dwelt apart from their fellow islanders, cut off from them by a desolate stretch of lava on one side and a mountain on the other, and they have ever shown a spirit and an independence not elsewhere to be found in Hawaii. Nay. They are not thoroughly tamed yet, nor civilized or Christianized. Cow was the last district on the island that submitted to Kamehameha I. Two heaps of stones near the roadside mark where they killed two of the early kings of Hawaii. On both occasions, these monarchs were trying to put down rebellion. They used to make their local chiefs very uncomfortable sometimes. And ten years ago, in a playful mood, they made two tax collectors flee for their lives. Most natives lie some, but these lie a good deal. They still believe in ancient superstitions of the race, and believe in the great shark god and pray each other to death. When sworn by the great shark god, they are afraid to speak anything but truth. But when sworn on the Bible in court, they proceed to soar into flights of fancy lion that make the inventions of Munchausen seem poor and trifling in comparison. They worship idols in secret and swindle the wayfaring stranger. Some of the native judges and justices of the peace of the Kaau district have been rare specimens of judicial sagacity. One of them considered that all the fines for adultery... $30 for each offense, properly belonged to himself. He also considered himself a part of the government, and if he committed that crime himself, it was the same as if the government had committed it, and of course, it was the duty of the government to pay the fine. Consequently, whenever he had collected a good deal of money from other court revenues, he used to set to work and keep on convicting himself of adultery until he had absorbed all the money on hand in paying fines. The adultery law has been so amended that each party to the offense is now fined $30, and I would remark in passing that if the crime were invariably detected and the fines collected, the revenues of the Hawaiian government would probably exceed those of the United States. 
I trust the observation will not be considered in the Latin of insinuation, however. An old native judge at Hilo once acquitted all the parties to a suit, and then discovering, as he supposed, that he had no further hold on them, and thus was out of pocket, he condemned the witnesses to pay the costs. A Kao judge, whose two years' commission had expired, redated it himself and went on doing business as complacently as ever. He said it didn't make any difference. He could write in as good a hand as the king could. The procession moveth again. Brown bought a horse from a native at Waiohinu for $12, but happening to think of the horse-jockeying propensities of the race, he removed the saddle and found that the creature needed half-soling, as he expressed it. Recent hard riding had polished most of the hide off of his back. He bought another, and the animal went dead lame before we got to the great volcano 40 miles away. I bought a reckless little mule for $15, and I wish I had him yet. One mule is worth a dozen horses for a mountain journey in the islands. The first 18 miles of the road lay mostly down by the sea and was pretty well sprinkled with native houses. The animals stopped at all of them, a habit they had early acquired. Natives stop a few minutes at every shanty they come to to swap gossip, and we were forced to do likewise, but we did it under protest. Brown's horse jogged along well enough for 16 or 17 miles, but then came to a walk and refused to improve on it. He had to stop and intrude upon a gentleman who was not expecting us, and who I thought did not want us either. But he entertained us handsomely nonetheless, and has my hearty thanks for his kindness. We looked at the ruddy glow cast upon the clouds above the volcano, only twenty miles away now. The fires had become unusually active a few days before, for a while after supper, and then went to bed to sleep without rocking. We stopped a few miles further on the next morning to hire a guide, but happily were saved the nuisance of traveling with a savage we could not talk with. The proprietor and another gentleman intended to go to the volcano the next day, and they said they would go at once if we would stop to take lunch. We signed the contract, of course. It was the usual style. We had found none but pleasant people on the island from the time we had landed at Kailua. To get through the last 20 miles, guys are indispensable. The whole country is given up to cattle ranching and is crossed and recrossed by a riddle of bull paths, which are hopelessly beyond solution by a stranger. In Fairyland Portions of that little journey bloom with beauty. Occasionally we entered small basins walled in with low cliffs, carpeted with greenest grass and studded with shrubs and small trees whose foliage shone with an emerald brilliancy. One species called Mamona, with its brilliant color as a delicate locust leaf, so free from decay or blemish of any kind and its graceful shape, chained the eye with a sort of fascination. The rich verdant hue of these fairy parks was relieved and varied by the splendid carmine tassels of the ohia tree. Nothing was lacking but the fairies themselves. The Kingdom of Desolation As we trotted up the almost imperceptible ascent and neared the volcano, the features of the country changed. We came upon a long, dreary desert of black, swollen, twisted, corrugated billows of lava blank and dismal desolation. Stony hillocks heaved up, all seamed with cracked wrinkles and broken open from the centers as circumference in a dozen places, as if from an explosion beneath. 
There had been terrible commotion here once when these dead waves were seething a fire, but now all was motionless and silent. It was a petrified sea. The narrow spaces between the upheavals were partly filled with volcanic sand, and through it we plodded laboriously. The invincible Ohia struggled for a footing even in this desert waste and achieved it, towering above the billows here and there with trunks flattened like spears of grass in the crevices from which they sprang. We came at last to torn and ragged deserts of scorched and blistered lava, to plains and patches of dull gray ashes, to the summit of the mountain, and these tokens warned us that we were nearing the palace of the dreaded goddess Pele, the crater of Kilauea. Mark Twain Letter 25 Volcano House June 3rd Midnight The Great Volcano of Kilauea I suppose no man ever saw Niagara for the first time without feeling disappointed. I suppose no man ever saw it the fifth time without wondering how he could ever have been so blind and stupid as to find any excuse for disappointment in the first place. I suppose that any one of nature's most celebrated wonders will always look rather insignificant to a visitor at first. But on a better acquaintance will swell and stretch out and spread abroad until it finally grows clear beyond his grasp, becomes too stupendous for his comprehension. I know that a large house will seem to grow larger the longer one lives in it, I also know that a woman who looks criminally homely at first glance will often so improve upon acquaintance as to become really beautiful before the month is out. I was disappointed when I saw the great volcano of Kilauea today for the first time. It is a comfort to me to know that I fully expected to be disappointed, however, and so, in one sense at least, I was not disappointed. As we raised the summit of the mountain and began to canter along the edge of the crater, I heard Brown exclaim, there's smoke by George. Poor infant, as if it were the most surprising thing in the world to see smoke issuing from a volcano. And I turned my head in the opposite direction and began to crowd my imagination down. When I thought I had got it reduced to about the proper degree, I resolutely faced about and came to a dead halt. Well, I am disappointed anyhow, I said to myself. Only a considerable hole in the ground. Nothing to holocala. A wide, level, black plain in the bottom of it. A few little sputtering jets of fire occupying a place about as large as an ordinary potato patch up in one corner. No smoke to amount to anything. And these tremendous perpendicular walls they talk about that enclose the crater, they don't amount to a great deal either. It is a large cellar. Nothing more. And precious little fire in it too. And so I soliloquized. But as I gazed... The cellar insensibly grew. I was glad of that, albeit I expected it. I am passably good at judging heights and distances, and I fell to measuring the diameter of the crater. After considerable deliberation, I was obliged to confess that it was rather over three miles, though it was hard to believe that at first. It was growing on me intolerably fast, and when I came to guess at the clean, solid perpendicular walls, that fenced in the basin, I had to acknowledge that they were from 600 to 800 feet high, and one or two places even a thousand, though at a careless glance they did not seem to be more than two or three hundred. 
The reason that the walls looked so low was because the basin enclosed was so large. The place looked a little larger and a little deeper every five minutes by the watch. And still, it was unquestionably small. There was no getting around that. About this time, I saw an object which helped to increase the size of the crater. It was a house perched on the extreme edge of the wall at the far end of the basin, two and a half miles away. It looked like a martin box under the eaves of a cathedral. That wall appeared immensely higher after that than it did before. I reflected that night was the proper time to view a volcano, and Brown, with one of those eruptions of homely wisdom which rouse the admiration of strangers, but which custom has enabled me to contemplate calmly, said five o'clock was the proper time for dinner. And therefore we spurred up the animals and trotted along the brink of the crater for about the distance it is from the Lick House in San Francisco to the Mission, and then found ourselves at the Volcano House. On the way we passed close to fissures, several feet wide and about as deep as the sea, no doubt, and out of some of them steam was issuing. It would have been suicidal to attempt to travel about there at night. As we approached the lookout house I have spoken before of as being perched on the wall, we saw some objects ahead which I took for the brilliant white plant called the Silver Sword, but they proved to be buoys, pyramids of stone painted white so as to be visible at night and set up at intervals to mark the path to the lookout house and guard unaccustomed feet from wandering into the abundant chasms that line the way. By the path, it is half a mile from the volcano house to the lookout house. After a hearty supper, we waited until it was thoroughly dark and then started to the crater. The first glance in that direction revealed a scene of wild beauty. There was a heavy fog over the crater, and it was splendidly illuminated by the glare of the fires below. The illumination was two miles wide and a mile high, perhaps. And if you ever, on a dark night and at a distance, beheld the light from thirty or forty blocks of distant buildings all on fire at once, reflected strongly against overhanging clouds, you can form an idea of what this looked like. The Vision of Hell and Its Angels Arrived at the little thatched lookout house, we rested our elbows on the railing in front and looked abroad over the wide crater and down over the sheer precipice at the seething fires below us. The view was a startling improvement on my daylight experience. I turned to see the effect on the balance of the company and found the reddest-faced set of men I've almost ever seen. In the strong light, every countenance glowed like red-hot iron. Every shoulder was suffused with crimson and shaded rearward into dingy, shapeless obscurity. The place below looked like the infernal regions, and these men like half-cool demons just come up on furlough. I took my eyes upon the volcano again. The cellar was tolerably well lit now. For a mile and a half in front of us, and half a mile on either side, the floor of the abyss was magnificently illuminated. Beyond those limits, the mists hung down their gauzy curtains and cast a deceptive gloom over all that made the twinkling fires in the remote corners of the crater seem less countless leagues removed, made them seem like campfires of a great army far away. Here was room for the imagination to work. You can imagine those lights the width of a continent away, 
and that hidden under the intervening darkness were hills and winding rivers and weary wastes of plain and desert, and even then the tremendous vistas stretched on and on and on, to the fires and far beyond. You could not compass it. It was the idea of eternity made tangible, and the longest end of it made visible to the naked eye. The greater part of the vast floor of the desert under us was black as ink and apparently smooth and level, but over a square mile of it was ringed and streaked and striped with a thousand branchy streams of liquid and gorgeously brilliant fire that looked like a colossal railroad map of the state of Massachusetts done in chain lightning on a midnight sky. Imagine that. Imagine a coal black sky shivered into a tangled network of angry fire. Here and there were gleaming holes twenty feet in diameter, broken in the dark crust, and in them the melted lava, the color a dazzling white just tinged with yellow, was boiling and surging furiously. And from these holes branched numberless bright torrents in many directions like the spokes of a lady's fan, and kept a tolerably straight course for a while and then swept round in huge rainbow curves or made a long succession of sharp warm fence angles which looked precisely like the fiercest jagged lightning. These streams met other streams and they mingled with and crossed and recrossed each other in every conceivable direction like skunk tracks on a popular skating ground. Sometimes streams twenty or thirty feet wide flowed from the holes to some distance without dividing, and through opera glasses we could see that they ran down small steep hills and were genuine cataracts of fire, white at their source but soon cooling and turning to the richest red, grained with alternate lines of black and gold. Every now and then masses of the dark crust broke away and floated slowly down these streams like rafts down a river. Occasionally, the molten lava flowing under the superincumbent crust broke through, split a dazzling streak from 500 to 1,000 feet long like a sudden flash of lightning, and then acre after acre of the cold lava parted into fragments, turned up edgewise like cakes of ice when a great river breaks up, plunged downward and were swallowed in the crimson cauldron. Then the wide expanse of the thaw maintained a ruddy glow for a while, but shortly cooled and became black and level again. During a thaw, every dismembered cake was marked by a glittering white border, which was superbly shaded inwards by aurora borealis rays, which were a flaming yellow where they joined the white border, and from thence, toward their points tapered into glowing crimson, then into a rich pale carmine, and then finally into a faint blush that held its own a moment and then dimmed and turned black. Some of the streams preferred to mingle together in a tangle of fantastic circles, and then they looked something like the confusion of ropes one sees on a ship's deck when she had just taken in sail and dropped anchor, provided one can imagine those ropes on fire. Through the glasses, the little fountains scattered about looked very beautiful. They boiled and coughed and spluttered and discharged sprays of stringy red fire, of about the consistency of mush, for instance, from 10 to 15 feet into the air, along with a shower of brilliant white sparks, a quaint and unnatural mingling of gouts of blood and snowflakes. 
We had circles and serpents and streaks of lightning all twined and wreathed and tied together without a break throughout an area more than a mile square. That amount of ground was covered, but was not strictly square. And it was with a feeling of placid exultation that we reflected that many years had elapsed since any visitor had seen such a splendid display since any visitor had seen anything more than the now snubbed and insignificant north and south lakes of action. I could see the north lake lying out on the black floor away in the outer edge of the panorama and knitted to it by a webwork of lava streams. In its individual capacity it looked very little more respectable than a schoolhouse on fire. True, it was about 900 feet long and two or three hundred wide, but then under the present circumstances, it necessarily appeared rather insignificant. And besides, it was rather distant from us. We heard a week ago that the volcano was getting on a heavier spree than it had indulged in for many years, and I'm glad we arrived at just the right moment to see it under full blast. I forgot to say that the noise made by the bubbling lava is not great. Heard as we heard it from our lofty perch, it makes three distinct sounds. A rushing a hissing, and a coughing or puffing sound. And if you stand on the brink and close your eyes, it is no trick at all to imagine that you are sweeping down a river on a large low-pressure steamer, and that you hear the hissing of the steam about her boilers, the puffing from her escape pipes, and the churning rush of the water abaft her wheels. The smell of sulfur is strong, but not unpleasant to a sinner. The Pillar of Fire we left the lookout house at about 10 o'clock in a half-cooked condition because of the heat from Pele's furnaces and wrapping up in blankets when the night was cold, returned to the hotel. After we got out in the dark, we had another fine spectacle. A column of cloud towered to a great height in the air immediately above the crater, and the outer wall of every one of its vast folds was dyed with a rich crimson luster which was subdued to a pale rose tint in the depressions between. It glowed like a muffled torch and stretched upward to a dizzying height toward the zenith. I thought it was just possible that its like had not been seen since the children of Israel wandered on their long march through the desert so many centuries ago over a path illuminated by the mysterious pillar of fire. And I was sure that I now had a vivid conception of what the majestic pillar of fire looked like which almost amounted to a revelation. Accommodations for Man and Beast It is only at long intervals that I mention in a letter matters which properly pertain to the advertising columns, but in this case it seems to me that to leave out the fact that there is a neat, roomy, well-furnished and well-kept hotel at the volcano would be to remain silent upon a point of the very highest importance to anyone who may desire to visit the place. The surprise of finding a good hotel in such an outlandish spot startled me considerably more than the volcano did. The house is new, built three or four months ago, and the table is good. One could not easily starve here even if the meats and groceries were to give out, for large tracts of land in the vicinity are well paved with excellent strawberries. One can have as abundant a supply as he chooses to call for. There has never heretofore been anything in this locality for the accommodation of travelers but a crazy old native grass hut, 
scanty fare, hard bets of matting, and a Chinese cook. Mark Twain. The End. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope you've enjoyed this Uvula Audio presentation of Letters from Hawaii by Mark Twain. Performance copyright 2011 by Uvula Audio. All rights reserved. The evocative and at the same time silly opening and closing ukulele island music was called Getting the Hang of It, and it was composed by a group called Freetime Hawaii. The theme can be found on SoundDogs.com. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at Uvila Audio at uvilaaudio.com. You can become a Facebook fan of Uvila Audio just to search for Uvila Audio on Facebook. We are listed on Podcast Alley. Please feel free to vote for the adult or kids bookcast so that we can get more listeners. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvila Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvilaaudio.com. We are, of course, listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcast for free there. If you like our podcasts, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal link. All monies will go toward maintaining the podcast in the future. The next bookcast coming up in the next couple of weeks will be Resurrection Day by Lester Dent. Resurrection Day is one of my favorite Doc Savage books of all time. Imagine that you could bring back to life one famous important person, one historical figure, one person and one person only. Who would it be? Solomon? St. Paul? Walt Disney? Edison? George Washington? Napoleon? Now imagine that Doc Savage is in exactly that very position. It's probably one of the weirdest and most improbable of all of his stories, but it's still a fascinating idea. Oh, and of course, not to be too spoilerish, but it does not go quite as planned. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>